Welcome to Plan, Build, Equip, a Covalis podcast and your source for industry-leading insights and thought leadership about strategic planning, implementation, and more in the healthcare space. If you have a project to plan and build, questions will surely follow, and we deliver the answers. Welcome to this episode of Plan, Build, Equip, a Covalis podcast. I'm your host, Shelby Skirhawk. Today on the podcast, we're talking about healthcare facility design that could make the difference between life and death. A landmark report by the U.S. Institute of Medicine in 1999 suggested that between 2 and 4% of all deaths in the U.S. are caused by medical errors. That's up to 100,000 people who die from something preventable. To discuss how healthcare facilities design can help solve this issue, I'm joined by Dr. Anjali Joseph, Professor of Architecture and Director of the Center for Health Facilities Design and Testing at Clemson University. Dr. Joseph studies how healthcare environments such as operating rooms can be designed to make these high-risk areas safer for clinicians and patients. Anjali, welcome. Hi, Shelby. Good to be here. So let's start by discussing that 1999 report Uh, It was titled, To Air is Human, Building a Safer Health System. So I imagine, you know, we're talking about 20 years here. I imagine that report really opened some eyes about the connection between design and patient safety. So how did it highlight the roles that planning and design could play in the healthcare environment? That's a great question. Uh, I think when the to Earth's human report was published, uh, what it did was shock a lot of people. Uh, no one, I think, before that had seen the data in quite the same way that going into a hospital could be so dangerous, that uh, you know you could uh, leave the hospital with falls, you could get an infection, you could die, the mortality rate. So I think it was shocking uh, to many. And uh, part of the uh, uproar that came about after that was that we were not doing something right in healthcare. Uh, we probably need to train our clinicians better, our nurses, our physicians, they're not doing the job. Why is this happening? Right? There was all that uproar. Uh, but some of what it did was it got people to be really aware that there is a problem that needs to be fixed. And the first uh, sort of um, reaction to that was let's fix the people who provide the care. But then what got lost in that report and what in people's perception of what was talked about was the fact that uh, there was a focus on the system. What what the report was saying is that we have all these problems, uh, but it, it isn't something that can be fixed by just training folks better or having them spend more years in school. But it is something that needs to be fixed through the system itself. The healthcare system is broken, it's flawed. Uh, There are many issues with how information is communicated, uh, how buildings are designed, how all of the, actually they did not talk about building design. That is one of the few things they didn't mention, but they did mention that it is these flaws in the design of the system that we need to address these sort of upstream issues that that get manifested in terms of the error that happens at the shop end uh, where the clinician uh, may f- be fatigued and may forget uh, to give the right medicine or may forget to put down a piece of information to communicate with the doctor uh, and there that impacts how they work so those are the things that we see um, and, and where the clinicians get critiqued, but there is a lot more behind the scenes. Uh, They did not really talk about the built environment, but what 
was happening sort of simultaneously in the healthcare design field was this whole push towards evidence-based design and designing buildings to have uh, better outcomes. Uh, and so these two things kind of came together. And I think over the last 10, 15 years, uh, it has become more obvious and more understood in the health system world that the built environment makes a difference. So it is part of that system, but they still don't talk about the built environment as much as they can, because I think what happens is uh, many clinicians assume that this is where we work. This is what we're given. We'll work around it. We'll somehow make it happen. Uh, they don't feel that this is something that they can change and make better to do their work better. They, they feel the things they can control is their processes, uh, maybe the technology, uh, maybe they can train their doctors better, uh, but they don't feel like the built environment could actually make a difference. Um, I know this is, this is sort of a long-winded answer to what you were saying, but no, it's great. But, uh, but you know that's kind of where we are now as far as understanding. We do understand the built environment makes a difference, and it can help with some of these errors. There's still a lot of work to be done. Well, so that's what I didn't uh, realize is that you know this report it pointed out uh, the the shocking number of errors that were happening, and and, um, and I, I do want to ask you kind of what sort of uh, you know, medical errors are we're talking about, but uh, you you make a great point about that when that report came out, the result was really okay. Well, we need to fix the people who give care versus fixing the system, and I think that's a really important distinction uh, and something that we're probably still working on today, twenty years later. So, for the for that report, and then you know, there's still numerous studies highlighting this urgent issue of medical errors and patient safety. For example, the BMJ Medical Journal reported in 2019 that one in 10 patients are harmed during medical care, and about 50% of those are preventable errors. So what sort of medical errors do you see playing out in care facilities, and how does poor design create or exasperate those errors? Yeah, so when we talk about patient harm and errors, it's sort of a larger group of things that are encompassed within that. Um, there's a term that's used pretty frequently. It, it, the terms and the definitions change, but we refer to them as hospital-acquired conditions uh, and patient harm, where this is referring to conditions that a, hos uh, that a patient might acquire in the hospital that was not underlying. That is not the reason why they came to the hospital. They came to be treated for something, to get a surgery. But these are conditions that they acquire because of the health system. So these are because of an error was created, uh, caused in terms of the medication they were given, or they uh, fell while uh, moving from getting up from their bed and going to the bathroom. This is not, again, something they came up with, but that may cause um, uh, an injury. They may break um, their, their, you know, a bone that might result in them staying longer, or they may require an infection while in the hospital. So these are the ones that we're really worried about because these are not part of the underlying conditions or complications of the patient itself, but acquired because of the health system. And, and, and these are huge problems. Uh, 20 years since the IOM report, and we're still talking about many of the same things. Uh, patient falls continues to be a very complex and hard to tackle problem, um, especially problematic because uh, we have a large number of elderly patients now uh, in the hospitals. In fact, more than majority of the population in the hospitals are elderly patients, and we'll see that as the population ages and falls are a big problem. And we know that um, a, pay a fall can 
can increase the chances of mortality. It can increase, uh, reduce the sort of quality of life going forward. Uh, the same thing with infections. These are these continue to be problems. There's a lot of work being done about it, and we see sort of incremental improvements. Um, um, but you know, those continue to be problems. And 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 you talk, you ask me, um, what are the kind of harms we're talking about? So errors could be medication errors. Uh, where during a surgery you may uh, give a wrong dose to a patient or give a wrong medication that you know look like medications they look the same they sound the same but they're actually different and they do different things uh, or it could be that information is miscommunicated you know earlier we had the, the doctors with their scrawled um, uh, prescriptions or diagnoses or whatever they've written uh, which is sometimes not read that is improved because of electronic medical records and information being uh, you know well documented uh, but there could be information that's miscommunicated or misheard uh, for example if you're in a noisy emergency department and someone tells you to do something but you heard something else uh, or you didn't hear what was said um, and that those those small critical delays could cause damage or harm to the patient um, so those are the kind of things we're talking about then i mentioned falls i mentioned infections uh, we've been doing a lot of work in the operating rooms uh, and we've spent uh, several hours observing surgeries uh, in person and video observations. And you, you know, you see how crowded and cluttered these environments are uh, with more and more technology, more equipment, many people, long surgeries, uh, and, and, you know, people are always moving things out of the way or tripping over something or climbing over wires to get to another place. Um, so you can imagine in that kind of an environment, especially when things are getting critical or, you know, there's something's going to happen, this could impact uh, patient safety because, you know, if you get a wire that's connected to a patient, it's pulled out, th that can take things south very quickly. Um, so that's where the environment comes into, into play. But all of these uh, errors are huge problems. And just designing better or will help in supporting some of these issues. For example, medication errors. Like one study found um, that in a pharmacy, I think it was a, um, a VA facility, uh, by just increasing the the light levels, the number of medication errors reduced. Oh, yeah. Or noises, interruptions. That's right. a huge problem. They're so loud. There's so many noises that you can't. You can barely hear yourself think. You can you cannot hear what the person is telling you, and and you know you make mistakes. Um, so these are not problems because of a person's uh, training or anything else, but it gets exacerbated when you think I'm tired, I'm fatigued, and then on top of that, I'm working in this environment where I have to wear all this PPE. Um, you know, I'm I, I, I can barely hear what people are saying. Then the chances of error increase significantly. Yeah, I mean you're you're working in an environment where the environment is actually working against you. Against you. Exactly. And, and the sad thing, or not exactly, I mean, is that many of the clinicians who work in these environments, they take it for granted. I mean, this is just what they're given. Uh, I, I, they don't think or feel that they can change it because this is the building, this is what I am. Um, and they work, they, they do amazing, heroic work in spite of the environment that they are provided and that they work in. So, um, you know, kudos to them, especially in the current situation with COVID. It's just crazy. Uh, yeah, and that's and you bring up a good point, and I want to uh, I want to come back to uh, to discuss COVID a little bit. Uh, but you started to mention this that a lot of clinicians just kind of take it for granted. They figure that's just how it is. But are medical professionals, you know, you mentioned pharmacists, uh, physicians, nurses, are they aware 
that poor design can impact these errors? And and what are some of the uh, perspectives that you've heard from medical professionals uh, in your role there as uh, director of Center for Health Facilities Design and Testing at Clemson? What are what are the responses you get from these medical professionals who may or may not realize that their environment is affecting their job? I think it's eye opening to them when we talk to them. Um, so just be- before I joined Clemson, I worked for uh, nine years at the Center for Health um, Design. Uh, which is a nonprofit healthcare design um, uh, organization based in California. And one of the things we did was we worked with hospitals that were building new facilities and we would provide them the research on how design impacts outcomes and, you know, kind of give them the cutting edge information to support the design process. Uh, And, and you you know, I'd make presentations to uh, groups of nurses and uh, other clinicians uh, and it would be, you could see the light bulbs, you know, things going off like, okay, you know what I'm talking about. You understand how I work and how the design, it's not something that they're consciously aware of or spend a lot of time thinking about it. Uh, but when we, when we can make that connection between design and their work and the outcomes, it makes complete sense to them. Um, so it, it's not something that many of them are inherently aware of, uh, but but it is, uh, it, once, once we, can communicate this information to them, I find that many of them are converts. They become advocates and they become the leaders in their organization saying that, okay, you know what, we need to make a difference. Um, You know, a great example is this um, project we've been working on with the Medical University of South Carolina. So we've been designing this operating room um, and uh, we worked, uh, we've been working with a clinical group of the surgical teams, both in pediatric surgery and in orthopedic surgery and we've had groups of uh, nurses and uh, surgeons coming in to these uh, operating room mock-ups that we built and they they go through these mock-ups they simulate the kind of activities that they would do in an actual surgery and then they give us feedback and uh, they've loved it i mean they get really engaged with it and they're able to talk about design uh, as it affects their work and the feedback I've gotten since this project has gotten over, but the nurse um, uh, 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 leader that we've been working with, she's told me that her nurses have loved this project and they had never thought research could be so much fun or that design impacts their work. And uh, they can really feel that the work they've done, the way they've contributed um, has actually made a difference because this work is then helping with the design of their new facility. Um, so I think clinicians are, are amazing advocates. Uh, they can make a change and they can be change leaders in terms of other projects. So from what I know is um, that they are thinking of, I think, building a new ICU or doing, doing a renovation. And this nurse leader reached out to me to say, okay, how would we go about doing something like this for the ICU renovation project? So I was able to give her some guidance. So th- I mean, that that's, that's very satisfying. It's not just this project, but how can we take this learning and the way of thinking into other projects? So, you know, once once they once they get it, um, it makes complete sense to them. Yeah. Well, and that's gotta be exciting because you're you're kind of talking to the front lines. You know, mm-hmm. there, you know, you can you can sit down with um hospital management, for example, upper management, and they may um be a little bit more removed from, mm-hmm. you know, what it's like on the floor, on you know, in the trenches. But to be able to bring, you know, clinicians uh, basically right to the design table, the drafting table, so to speak, 
uh, I think that's um, that's a really innovative approach. Um, so when we're talking about clinicians, uh, who else are you bringing to the table? Uh, you know, I imagine we're talking to you know upper management, uh, architects. What like who else is on this kind of multidisciplinary team uh, that you use to be able to design better spaces? And, you know, that's a great question. Um, these teams can vary so much. It totally depends on the kind of space and the kind of project that you're working on. Um, so if you're building a brand new replacement facility, then you're thinking about every space, right, from the utility, central utility plants to uh, operating rooms to medical surgical areas to uh, registration. Um, so you, you need pretty much everybody on every level to be able to contribute to some part of that discussion. And often these um, large hospital projects are massive. I mean, their teams are massive. Uh, they will usually structure a whole bunch of different user group meetings with different users, uh, and they meet with them on a regular basis so that they can share their design with them and get their feedback. Uh, and different projects do it differently you know, in terms of how many people they have involved and whether they stay involved throughout the project, how they are involved, uh, there is a lot of variation, um, and I've seen all kinds of things. Like I was talking about the work we did at CHD, and one of the projects I was involved with was Palomar Pomerado Health, and they were building a brand new replacement facility, a huge facility out in uh, sort of outside of San Diego. And uh, their CEO had decided that you know we are going to go all in. We are going to have everybody in our facility involved, right from the the frontline person to the, those involved with environmental services to the surgeon to the CEO um, everyone has a role to play in this and they will all be involved uh, and so he basically asked for volunteers from all of these different levels uh, and they formed different groups and they were tasked with doing the research on sort of the new and upcoming things um, the same handed rooms or whatever sustainability and they did the research and provided a sort of feedback and um, recommendations to the design team uh, and that is in my from what I've seen is kind of one of the extreme ones where you've had so many people at so many levels involved for many years uh, it's a huge commitment uh, for the organization to do something like that uh, but there are other others where you know there's smaller teams involved and then there are other organizations that I've seen more recently uh, like the Children's Healthcare of Atlanta recently did an amazing project actually they're in the process of designing it uh, where they are building, I think, about a 300-bed new children's hospital. Um, and over the last couple of years, they took over an entire warehouse and they built mock-ups of all the spaces. Uh, these are life-size life replicas of the spaces that they're planning. Uh, and they did it in multiple phases. Early on, when they didn't, we just had the basic space and they were trying to figure out details and then more detailed mock-ups for all kinds of spaces, rooms, uh, operating rooms, IC rooms, um, nursing stations. So the entire space, and then they brought in a large number of teams who ran through various kind of simulations, and then they evaluated that and then worked through it. So there are you know different ways in bringing it. And I think to your question of who do you bring to the table, it is a whole bunch of different folks. So in, in, our, in our project for the operating room, we had a much smaller scope. So we were looking at surgeons, we were looking at nurses, uh, we were looking at, we would have loved to have maybe environmental services and others, but that was probably the more, the clinical team involved in the OR was who we were brought in, bringing to these meetings. 
in addition to administrators and of course the architects, um, uh, the researchers, the engineers. Um, these are sort of the core themes that we were talking about. So you mentioned, you know, building a children's hospital, an operating room, uh, nurses stations, all of the different um, elements of, uh, you know, of functionality in a healthcare space. When we talk about those specific uses, uh, and let's go ahead and say operating room, for example, what what features should be considered to make that operating room safer for clinicians and patients? I'm, I'm curious about just, I guess, the, the specificity of the design and the use and how that is connected. So with, whether it is an operating room or a, or, you know, a, a children's hospital, a, you know, maybe a, a long-term uh, care facility, what are some of those those features that should be considered? I think there are different features clearly that become important in these different environments. I mean, you brought up long-term care environments. That's a whole other thing uh, because here you have people who are living here. They're not patients. They're residents. This is their home. But at the same time, you have to provide health care. Then you have an operating room where you have these really critical patients who are going to be in anesthesia. They have no clue what's going on. Uh, but you're really designing for their safety, but also the work of the clinicians that needs to happen. So you almost in all of these projects, uh, you start with what are your guiding principles? What are your goals? Uh, what what do you think are things that you cannot compromise on? What for example, for the operating room, you know, we had various goals. Uh, we have to design for safety. Uh, we have to reduce disruptions during the uh, surgery. We have to improve the patient experience uh, before they go into surgery. Uh, we have to um, help uh, the situation awareness among the clinical team so that they know what's going on. Uh, surgery is very much a team sport. Uh, they coordinate and communicate with each other in order to get the work done. It, it's a very sort of a complex uh, choreography of different uh, activities that need to take place. Um, so, you know, we had to set those goals for us in terms of these are the things we really need to consider for an operating room. Um, and from there come our solutions uh, based on, you know, those goals and based on the research. Uh, so, example, for, say, if, if our goal is to improve situation awareness, uh, then, you know, we, we came up with solutions such as uh, having um, displays at different places in the room uh, so that in addition to the information that, say, the surgeon can see on the screen that's right in front of them, uh, there is some other information that's available to the entire team uh, on large screens in the in the OR. For example, they can see um, what the patient vitals are, where they can see the, the you know, the... Uh, the the video feed that looks at the surgical site is also shown uh, on one of the largest screens. So, say the anesthesiologist who's behind the drape and cannot typically see inside the patient uh, can monitor what's going on, and because they need to be able to uh, react to what they are seeing on the screen and then prepare the next medication that needs to be done, or what you know, bringing the patient out of um, anesthesia or out of induction. So they may be things that they need to know and that information might otherwise require them to pop around the, the drape and see what's happening or ask somebody something. Um, but that's just an example of that. Um, and, and then, you know, the other uh, problem thing that we saw a lot was a lot of disruptions during surgery and people moving all around the OR, trying to get to things. So, we, you know, the one thing we recommended was have uh, people be located 
close to where their supplies, I mean, the supplies be located close to where people might be uh, in the OR so that they don't have to move around unnecessarily uh, in the OR space. So say the circulating nurse is someone who's um, managing the entire operation. They are seeing uh, what everybody's needs are, where they are in the surgery, what information is needed, what supplies are needed. So they need to be able to monitor everything. Um, and they're often responsible for uh, providing supplies or essential things to different team members. So it's important that their supplies are located close to them um, because what we saw in some of the operating rooms was the supplies for the nurse were located in another corner of the operating room, which would require them to kind of go around the scrub nurse, around the anesthesiologist and get the information, get the stuff and then come around. So this is a lot of travel chances of them bumping into something, uh, tripping over the instrument table or like, you know, dropped instruments, all of those, the chances that the risk of error increases. So just by kind of locating things in the right place, uh, thinking about where the doors are located um, so that uh, the patient is being brought in uh, and transitioned out smoothly. Um, anybody else entering the OR doesn't kind of go into the surgical area where the you know the, the most sterile zone um, to prevent conflicts, uh, those kind of things. Just a simple thing like angling the bed of uh, the surgical table. Um, so usually the beds are placed parallel to one of the, the walls. Um, and what we found with that was that um, usually there end up being a corner in the operating room which was not used and it would end up being the location for all the junk <laughs> all the stuff that you don't really use that much but just in case you need it it's, it's stored over there uh, but that becomes a place where there's more wires more cords more dust uh, collected hard to clean places but if you angle the bed then you have sort of equal amount of space on either side of the table where you can then uh, do right-sided surgeries left-sided surgeries in an equivalent way so you know small things like that those are some design examples in the operating room uh, but the solution will be very different in a long-term care facility or in a children's hospital um, does that make sense yes absolutely and it, it's fascinating to uh you know, to think of all of the all of the unknown. Well, it's fascinating to think of how much goes into understanding the you know the dance of mm -hmm. an operating room. Um, you know, I might be tempting fate here, but <laughs> I'm curious. So I just had um, I had you know uh, spinal fusion surgery last year, and um, so I'm, I'm picturing myself in the operating room. And you know, when you're describing, you know, the you know the, the scrub nurse and the anesthesiologist and all the people that have to be in the room monitoring things. Um, okay, I'm going to scare myself here, but how often does that happen where, you know, a, a room is so poorly laid out that, you know, you know, they do end up tripping over each other. They, you know, instruments fall on the floor, uh, you know, any of those little mishaps, how common is that? That's a great question. Unfortunately, <laughs> more frequent than you would expect uh, yes. as a patient. Yes, <laughs> These, I know. I mean, I bet. The major problems like, uh, you know, uh, an instrument left inside you or yes. some kind of thing, that thankfully doesn't happen as much, though more than we would want. I mean, what we want is zero. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but it happens more than that. But in terms of like uh, tripping over something or climbing over um, wires, uh, bumping into something, instruments dropped, that happens pretty frequently. 
um, it, it's just so crowded, especially in some of the older ORs that are really tiny and you cram them full of people. If you think about, say, academic medical centers, uh, often there are like 12 or 14 people in a 400 square foot OR. Uh, and if you think about all the equipment that's in there, there's literally no space to stand. I mean, I've done some observations where I'm literally wedged in between two pieces of equipment and trying to stay out of the way of people doing work and I almost feel guilty being in that space because you know I don't want to contribute to errors uh, but I have ultimate respect for people who work in these hours just standing there and observing for two hours my feet are ready to give out and they are working in these conditions and they're just amazing um, so yes I mean I guess the answer is it happens frequently I wish I could give you the number from my <laughs> studies but I don't remember it right now. No. <laughs> No, but it's it is. It's eye opening to to realize just how common it is, and uh, the the fact that there it's it's preventable, and it can be uh, you know a lot of these errors can be eliminated with with good healthcare facilities design. So as we start to talk about um, you know facilities, and and we do start to wrap up our episode, um, I wanted to come back to the discussion about COVID. So uh, you know. While we are still in the middle, uh, you know, while we are literally in the trenches, uh, you know, there's there's not a whole lot of, um, you know, planning that can be done, I guess, to um, to design a better hospital. Uh, I think people are, you know, healthcare uh, professionals are are just surviving right now. But what uh, what discussions are happening now to create a better environment for uh, for you know? COVID patients or uh, kind of maybe how will COVID change uh, healthcare facilities design and, and, and what we know about hospitals in terms of, um, you know, how things are laid out, how they're built and, and um, all of those kind of infrastructure elements to them. Yeah, I mean, COVID has definitely been uh, on the top of the mind for healthcare architects uh, around the country, around the world, because uh, that's been the big push, how to change and adapt to this new situation, which, uh, you know, we've, we've had guidelines out there um, from CDC and others for tuberculosis patients, and we kind of know what to do in those situations. But these are very rare situations and we did not expect any, anything along the scales of what we've experienced. Um, so there's been a lot of conversations, a lot of changes that people are already doing. Uh, architecture firms have been called on to respond to uh, health systems around the country and come up with innovative solutions in the absence of really good information or base knowledge. So it's been interesting. Uh, but some of the big conversations that are happening in terms of thinking for the future is about flexibility and adaptability. How do we how do we design facilities that are not over-designed, assuming that every day is a COVID-19 situation, but just normal functioning, but if needed, how do we be, how can the design uh, allow us to flex and expand our, uh, to that situation where we have a large influx of patients who have infectious uh, disease issues. We have COVID-19 now, but it could be something else later and it might have a different way of spreading, but you know, 
in the context of covid the big discussion has been around uh, air quality and modifying our uh, heating ventilation you know the hvac systems um, we just we found i think that we were not equipped in most of our icus or in the emergency department with appropriate amount of negative pressure rooms uh, and the idea with negative pressure rooms is that uh, the the room would be at a lower pressure to its surroundings so the air would not go leave that space and you know when you're talking about an infectious disease like covid-19 that's really critical um so you know uh, so we've just not had enough negative pressure rooms so some of the discussion that i'm seeing in uh, is that uh, how do we design um, surgical units uh, say med surge units which are for more step down uh, patients how do we move that into an covid icu for example uh, that could be by setting up Uh, the unit in terms of layout and in terms of uh, ventilation so that it can be moved into a negative pressure kind of a situation so the whole unit can become a covid unit but otherwise it would function as a normal unit uh, maybe even adding things like hepa filtration so hepa filters are filters that would filter out say 99.7% of um, any uh, germs or other uh, pathogens which are less than which are more than 0.3 micron i think in diameter so uh, there is hepa filters are already being used in um, say in operating rooms or in places where there are a lot of immune compromised patients but there's a lot of discussion about making hepa filtration more commonly available in healthcare spaces um so that in a situation such as now we can kind of handle that um the other things i've heard about is uh having more private rooms in the emergency department uh, so ed bays tend to be more open uh, they may be separated by curtains or you know like low height partitions uh, but that doesn't work as well in a covid kind of a situation where you have to isolate patients right so in the future we might see more private rooms with negative pressure possibilities in the emergency department so that because you know all your patients are coming into the ed it is the first line of defense how do we handle that um so that you know that becomes that becomes an important thing that i think we'll have more people talking about then the other thing is just waiting areas what's going to happen with waiting areas uh, <laughs> because uh, you you know you know i've gone to a couple of doctors with us with my kids and there's no waiting now from the car i'm taken directly to my um exam room finish my thing and i'm out of there they don't want you hanging out and spreading covid uh so what's going to happen with all these waiting areas can those be design such that if there's a situation such as covid and you need to create new uh, intensive care spaces can you convert an ed into a covid bay or something like that um, then there's also the issue of uh, testing people's temperatures you know uh, do, you, do you need to make space like a a protected area where people can check the temperatures before they are let in but it's employees with patients uh, that requires a different thinking about the flow of people um and that's true even now i mean that's something that all these hospitals have had to do is to manage their flow so that they can separate out the sort of the fevered patients from the non fevered protect the staff from the patients um it's all been hard because the volume has been so massive and it's unprecedented and the buildings are not designed for that um so it, it all goes back to how do you design a facility that can function at a normal level uh, but can flex and change uh, for the future um and so that i think is going to be the the biggest challenge moving forward um for, as far as i can 
I can see, and I, you know, I've seen also a lot of work around designing alternate care sites, uh, more modular units, modular ICUs, uh, things that you can just take like a, a pod that can be taken and placed in the uh, parking lot of the hospital. Uh, those things became popular at a point, uh, but now I, I, you know, it needs to be thought about how do we have that knowledge uh, available and maybe that the stuff i mean the, the the modules or the 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 spaces or the buildings uh, in a form that they can be quickly mobilized in case of an emergency um, but that becomes challenging i mean how you can't afford to keep these things these spaces in a in that kind of a semi mobilized fashion because it costs money to do that um, but we'll have to think about that for sure right right there's a lot of issues there and there's a mm-hmm. lot of uh, thought that uh, that's happening on the fly, but uh, it's certainly going to to shape uh, the future of of healthcare design. Absolutely, I think it's going to change the future of all buildings. Um, everyone's going to be thinking about it, whether it's a school or an office building, um, public spaces. Yeah, homes. exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's it's stuff. A huge impact. That's stuff you just you don't realize until you're right in the middle of this, and 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 you're you're having to adapt. So. It's it's really fascinating stuff, and and I truly appreciate all of your expertise and and your time today, Dr. Joseph. You're most welcome. Thank you, Shelby. It was really wonderful speaking with you, and you asked great questions. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> well, that does it for this episode of Plan, Build, Equip, a Cavalis podcast. Until next time, I'm Shelby Skirhawk. <laughs> <laughs>